Welcome to Full Radio, a Florida true crime podcast. I'm Karen Curtis, and I'm joined today by my friend and former FBI Special Agent Stuart Kaplan, who's also now a defense attorney here in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, and he's my go-to guy on everything Gabby Petito. How are you? Good morning, Karen. It's a little rainy out, but uh, I'm no it. complaints. You made it here without melting. I did. My- I know you like to uh, be on CNN with Don Lemon, uh, but I'm going to steal you today because we just had the autopsy results come out about, we knew that Gabby Petito was murdered, but we didn't know the cause. And here is the medical examiner, the uh, coroner in Wyoming yesterday. We find the cause and manner to be cause death by strangulation and manner is homicide. Her body was outside in the wilderness for three to four weeks. And she wasn't pregnant. Did any of that surprise you? It didn't surprise me, but I just want to go back on something that you said. You said we knew that the we knew that Gabby Petito had been killed or had been murdered. And so, you know, Karen, part of what I see, and it's interesting because in, in this day and age where social media has clearly taken over um, the dissemination of information, the public should be aware that legally speaking, we did not know that it was a homicide until such time as a medical expert can opine that in fact it is a homicide. That is a critical component that must be established to then be able to charge someone with the murder or the death of an individual. Because as you know, people can die from natural causes, they can die from an accidental overdose, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in this particular case, when I would suspect a grand jury has been convened. And when evidence is being put forth before this grand jury, the last piece of the puzzle is this report that attests to the fact that based upon someone's expertise, that the medical findings are consistent with a homicide. And then someone can be charged with their death. Well, we knew when she was identified a couple weeks ago through the coroner, they said that manner of death was homicide. Correct. And, and well, look, I think that is a, a law enforcement assumption. But when you talk about legally speaking in something that's going to be brought forth for a prosecution, and I think that's one of the things that hopefully you and I will touch upon this morning for your listeners, is that when law enforcement is conducting these very complicated investigations, it's not like a pay for TV type of movie where you have two hours to get yes. the entire episode, you know, solved. <laughs> we got the DNA back in right. three minutes. Right. And so by way of example, you know, what was not disclosed yesterday is just as telling as the cause and manner of death. And that is whether or not any foreign DNA was found either under her fingernails or on her body. Now, I or would on as- her neck. Oh, right. And so you can assume that they have captured Brian Laundrie's DNA. Well, he's going to say, I was dating her. I was with her. Of course, my DNA is on her. Correct. I can tell you the DNA samples were taken by law enforcement. And all I can tell you about remains is that uh, the body was outside for three to four weeks. But what would be consistent more times than not with a person who's being strangled is that individual probably will attempt to fend off their attacker. You may find DNA under her fingernails, which would be consistent with then her trying to defend herself. If his DNA is then found under his fingernails, it's going to be a tough defense for him to then say that's just, you know, that's 
just the fact that I was in close proximity with her because we were together. Well, she scratched my back. I had an right. itch. Maybe. But here's the interest. But here's the interesting twist, Karen. And again, it's a, a potential hypothesis. Assume they found foreign DNA either on her body or under her nails. You know, the fact that, you know, the government, you know, the FBI, which is tasked with collecting DNA and, and putting it into a database, it could potentially, and I'm not saying obviously that, it, you know, because I, I don't believe this to be true, but it is possible that it could exclude Brian Laundrie from being the person responsible for having caused her death because that DNA could either come back to someone known who's been in, inputted into the system or some unknown individual. They did not say, Dr. Blue, the coroner, did not say whether or not he believes she could have definitely sent that text on August 30th because he says the body was out there for three to four weeks. Why did it take so long from when they identified her to then announce the cause of death? Did they wait for toxicology? Well, no. In fact, I think that generally speaking, from my experience, toxicology reports take at least 30 to 60 to 90 days. But let me let me put something in context, you know, here in the state of Wyoming, you know, out there in that little, you know, small town, homicides are not something that are routine. Clearly, and I think he touched upon it yesterday. But wouldn't the FBI be involved in that? Well, the FBI does not conduct autopsies, you know, so they reach out to these medical experts who are brought in across the country to have to then dissect the body and keep in mind this body from what i understand there was a tremendous amount of decomposition yeah, three to four weeks out there right and so and you, grand tetons correct so you, you have the natural elements you have the you know just the climate out there and then unfortunately potentially if you have wild animals who also may have uh, joined in and may be uh, a cause of the decomposition it is going to take a lot of time the one thing that I think was very telling with respect to the degree of decomposition is they brought in a forensic anthropologist. And the reason why they brought in a forensic anthropologist is because it would be indicative of that the body was not intact, that it may have been scattered, meaning that certain, and, and not to be gory or to be morbid about this, but some of her body parts may have been detached from one another, and it would take a forensic anthropologist to basically put the body back as best it could so they could do a thorough examination. So, And it takes a long time to strangle someone, and this was actually manual strangulation and throttling. Throttling is when you're putting pressure on the neck other than just the body, your head on top of your neck, and or you could maybe use a, a stick but how long does it take to strangle someone? It takes it's very personal and very it's a very rough way to go. It is, and of course, uh, there is a difference between trying to suffocate someone by covering their mouth or trying to suffocate or asphyxiate them. The reason why they were able to determine the strangulation is because generally speaking, you're going to see uh, 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 fragments or bones that have actually been fractured uh, in the windpipe or in the larynx or area. Or if the if the the blood flow is cut off, right? You're going to petechia in the eyes? Generally speaking, yes, but that also could be consistent with covering someone's mouth that their eyes start to bulge. And just, again, in men, when a man is strangled uh, by manual strangulation, you tend to see the a Adam's apple being separated or being pushed in, Oof. which is consistent with that blunt force being pushed upon the throat. Right. Also, the hyoid bone, that U-shaped bone in the neck, you know that it's fractured in one-third of all homicides by strangulation? 
in this particular situation, clearly there were fragments or fractures of her uh, airway, which would then be consistent with her being manually strangulated. But no ligature. I don't think there's a garret or anything. Yeah, right. And ligature is when you suffocate or you cover someone with a cloth or something, which would not create the blunt trauma or the damage to that area, meaning in the windpipe. Ligature is when it's, they wrap something around your neck. Correct, like and, a cord or something, yeah. try to strangle someone. Or like in the movie uh, Marathon Man with Roy Scheider, who had the panana, piano wire exactly. around the neck. That is true. So they don't believe, they think it was manual, or maybe he even like put his arm on her neck. Yeah. That's throttling, right? Correct, correct. Wow, that means somebody, you know, whoever it was, I'm not saying it was him, uh, even if he's, I don't know if he's alive, but uh, that means that you want to watch someone die. It, it certainly shows a tr- a very violent encounter, and it sure it certainly is consistent with someone being a rage because for someone, and, and let's just assume, and it's often common in a domestic violence. Well, that's situation. where that's where I was going, but I was trying to be tactful. Let's assume, for example, let's assume for this conversation that it was Brian Laundry. Clearly, it would have to be such a rage of fury, such a angry individual to be pushed to the point where you have been involved in someone, dating someone, in love with someone, planning to spend the rest of your life with someone, and then get to the point where now you have decided in this fit of rage to end someone's life. That's a horrific type of scenario, and, and it's a horrific situation for the parents uh, and for the loved ones of Gabby Petito. Well, we do know that uh, the national focus on her whereabouts did reveal that they were involved in a domestic dispute in Utah in August. So there is a bit of a track record there. And then, of course, he returns home to Northport, Florida, in her van without her. Yeah, I mean, obviously, (laughs) look, everything that he has done is inconsistent with what generally would happen, even if there was a a lover's quarrel, even if they were getting... Uh, or not getting along, they would come home and then they would part their separate ways and he would go back, you know, she would go back up to New York and he would remain in Florida. But to me, it's certainly consistent with him trying to, you know, cover up and evade detection of this unfortunate situation that befell uh, Gabby Petito. And the parents uh, probably know something. We're speaking with Stuart Kaplan. He is a former FBI special agent and a defense attorney currently. Uh, we're talking about the autopsy of Gabby Petito. They also performed a whole body CT scan. So they must have gotten the whole body uh, back. And then, you, as you said, had the forensic pathologist there to help out and a forensic anthropologist and then the toxicology analysis. I don't know if, I, if you did answer why it took so long to come out with the cause of death. I just think, uh, Karen, with the decomposition of the body, I think it was not a long time. I mean, I think, look, if you have a victim who's been shot, it's, it's readily apparent there's an entrance wound and sometimes an exit wound. And then generally, if the bullet hasn't got, has an exit, you retrieve the bullet and you opine the cause of death is a result of a single gunshot wound. It's pretty simple. Right. In this particular case, when you have to first resolve to basically, and again, not to be morbid, but to 
fight the decomposition of a body that's been out in the elements for three or four weeks and basically try to put the body back together to determine what's consistent with human interaction versus wildlife, that may take some time. And so, you know, you're talking about a, a, a lot of microscopic, uh, you know, efforts uh, under a microscope, really, to put that person back together. Ugh. So they made the announcement of the autopsy this week, and it came after Petito. She was 22, was reported missing in the wake of a road trip with her 23-year-old fiancé, Brian Laundry, who's only charged with the federal charge of uh, fraud, right? Brian Laundry at this point, is only charged with a bank fraud count in the federal courts. Okay, and that's for using, allegedly, her ATM and withdrawing money. That is correct. Um, also, she was first reported missing by her parents on September 11th. And after the extensive search, they found her remains September 19th. And it was where their van was last seen a couple weeks earlier. And then also, we haven't seen laundry uh, in weeks since he arrived home. We don't know where he is. Do you think he's alive? You know, Karen, I think again, and I've been asked this, the difficulty that I have with this case, to be quite frank, uh, frankly speaking, is we just don't know precisely how much of a head start he had. We do know that on September 1st, a license plate reader picked up Gabby Petito's uh, vehicle coming off the interstate back into Northport, uh, Florida. We know that for sure. We can assume that he was the driver of that van. After September 11th, I'm sorry, after September 1st, everything in my mind is speculative. And why? Because I think there's been a track record that has proven that at least for the parents, they have been found to be not credible, or at least up until more recently. Well, and their attorney says that they have declined a polygraph. Yeah. And so there lays the difficulty we're really trying to pinpoint with with some degree of accuracy, how much of a head start did he have? And let's just assume. And they don't seem to be too upset. Like if if he's not alive, they're not mourning him seemingly. Yeah, I, I think that these parents are um, just an interesting bunch of people, to be quite frank. To it's be, very odd, isn't it? it the, the behavior is very, very odd. I mean, the behavior is odd. Look, I, I think I've said it to you when we spoke last week or two weeks ago. You know, parents sign up to be very protective of their children. And I draw the line in trying to protect my child. If my child came home and said, dad, I've done a horrible act, I've killed someone, I would then obviously go out and try to retain the best attorney possible to protect my child. But any effort to deceive or to hide or to evade or to, um, you know, continue to uh, compound what my son has done, I haven't signed up for that. Like a possible goose chase in a 25,000-acre reserve. And also, remember, Dog the Bounty Hunter was involved uh, trying to find him, and he has gone home to Colorado. He apparently hurt his ankle. But did you know, because I asked you this last time, did he even have the authority to to arrest him or capture him because he wasn't he charged there was an uh, a warrant issued um where actually he was arrested in a drug deal gone wrong when his accomplice shot and killed a man so he was convicted of first degree murder he's unable to get the proper licensing to actually 
he can capture him, but he can't arrest him, right? Yeah, no, he does not have peace officer status or you know law enforcement status, but anybody could detain detain him. detain him. Uh, but I in this in this type of situation, I would not recommend it. I think what you should do is pick up the phone if you see him or come into contact with him, call law enforcement, call nine one one, and let leave it to law enforcement. So, what's your best guess as to where he is? Alive or dead, and where is he? Well, you know, Karen, the interesting thing is there was never any speculation that Brian Laundrie had access to a firearm. It's it's interesting. Uh, that's easily identifiable. That's easily to be determined. Um, it's interesting. It's never been something, meaning the instrumentality of him having a firearm or access to a firearm has never been interjected into this equation. And so when you talk about taking a person's life or you, you know, committing suicide, you know, there's limited ways of killing yourself. Now, you could overdose, you could take, you know, tranquilizers or narcotics. There hasn't been much speculation with respect to whether or not he had access to narcotics or prescription medication where he could have gone out into the woods and overdosed. Well, they say he left without his phone and his wallet. Yeah. Well, again, and I And I think, again, you know, those are things that are very premeditated. Uh, Leaving the phone, I think, is very premeditated. Now, keep in mind, he left the phone that he originally had. He did not leave the phone that he purchased after coming back from out west. I thought the FBI had that one. No, I believe they only have the original phone. They do not have possession of Gabby Petito's phone or the new phone that he purchased. And keep in mind, again, you have to go and reason with yourself as to why someone would go and purchase a new phone if, in fact, they had no indication or no reason to contact someone or be in contact with others. So it's just, again, another twist. Yes. So if he is alive, where would he be? Again, you know, let's look, let's just give him the benefit of a 72 hours. But look, you know, 72 hours could get you across the border at the right place. Okay. Or 72 hours could get you out to any place in the United States. And so, and you know, the interesting, the interesting thing is he looks like many, many other people. I mean, he really looks like the typical average American male at that age. Right. And so, you know, easily he's going to blend in and that's going to be present some difficulty. But this is what I see happening, is if he is in fact alive, it's just a matter of time that he's going to surface because he's going to need some assistance or something, and he'll trip up. And that is when, generally speaking, he'll run into a good Samaritan who was paying attention through the uh, uh, you know social media or the news media and call law enforcement, and then he will be apprehended or uh, you know uh, picked up. Again, Karen, and, and I, I said this at the very beginning, it is possible that even though he may be wanted for the bank fraud, he may be excluded based upon some other DNA that now has been identified to some other person that's never been brought forth. Now, here's something. Is it possible the FBI could say that they have other DNA that excludes him just to get him to come out from underneath the rock that he's under? Well, I would imagine... Based, because you can use subterfuge. Well, I would imagine that the FBI has implemented techniques to try to smoke him out and to try to draw him out, obviously to no avail. 
And again, um, what if they did announce, hey, we have this DNA doesn't match Brian, so he didn't do it? Well, look, that that is always a possibility. But I think that um, I think his fate has already been sealed, so to speak. And I think this person is well, not going to- he would know that's a lie if yeah. he did, did, did do it. And again- right? He'd know it was wrong. No, no he, question about it. No, they were- that, That's a dumb- No that, question. That was actually dumb of me. Well, no, but here's the interesting thing. He would have to have a place where he's monitoring social media or monitoring the television or the radio or access to the internet. And so let's just assume- He's out in the Rocky Mountains or out in California, in the, in the mountains somewhere in California or down in San Diego, you know, in the ocean somewhere, you know, on his uh, sail, uh, sailboat with no access to Internet. He may not know what's going on. Well, and the family has this attorney. Is it possible that the Brian could communicate with his family through the attorney because they cannot put a wire on the attorney? There's so, a privilege there. Right. Well, there is a privilege. There is the attorney-client privilege. However, there is a fine line that has been, I guarantee you, has been made clear to the attorney and to the family. Any efforts to assist or to facilitate the obstruction or the it would become an accessory after the fact because when you are but now- But he's not a suspect. Well, but he's a now wanted fugitive on that bank fraud. So that's a different dynamic. And that's why they published this because they wanted everybody to know that if you do anything to assist this individual to defeat apprehension, you potentially could be prosecuted for obstruction. Even if you're a parent? Even if you're a parent, absolutely. I thought there was a protection there. There is no protection to be an accessory after the fact. And matter of fact, in the federal system, if you look up the code, they're subjected to 15 years in jail for being accessory after the fact. Wow. Well, of course, we're going to keep you on top of this. And if he turns up or anything new happens, but now we have the autopsy, really, we're just in a wait and see mode until we find this guy dead or alive. Yeah, I mean, look, the reality is it, law enforcement is continuing to move forward. But Karen, the, you know, the most important thing, and one of the things that has not been discussed is that in a capital case, a homicide case, a murder case, you don't want to rush your case into a court of law because there's something considered speedy trial. And that means within 180 days, the government must bring you before a jury of your peers. Oh, so that's why he hasn't been charged. Well, the government wants to make sure that they have all of their T's crossed and all of their I's dotted because discovery would require them to turn over all of the evidence. And if you're still in the process of going through the evidence or your case is not ripe yet, your case can be thrown out. And so you don't want to make any mistakes because making a mistake in a case like this could have dire consequences. And so I don't Double jeopardy. Yeah, double jeopardy. A a suppression motion. I mean, something that could be kept out. And, and, you know, here's the interesting thing. You know, just to get someone's phone records, it requires a subpoena. If if, if the FBI or local law enforcement calls up your, your carrier, they don't just turn over your phone records. They want a subpoena. That takes time. Right. I mean, so that's why this has not been a very lengthy period of time. Well, the sheriff of Polk County, one of my favorites, Grady Judd, said that uh, if Brian had been in his jurisdiction in Polk County, he would be behind bars right now, that he would have arrested him. Is that 
I mean, is he accurate? Would that have been possible at the time before he went missing? The argument that he's... On what charges? Exactly. So look, the argument that's being made is that when they believe that he was home at some point between September 1st and September 11th or thereafter when they believed he was hunkered down with his mom and dad or somehow they had surveillance, I don't believe that he could have been... He could have been detained for questioning, but once he invokes his Fifth Amendment... And he says, I'm not going to talk to you. I want an attorney. You got to cut him loose. And there is exactly what I was touching upon. If you elicited a confession out of him and it was a a competent defense attorney comes forward and now makes a motion to suppress that statement based upon, you know, you put him under duress or you, you know, you threatened him. That confession goes right out the window. You know what happens to your homicide case? Goodbye. Yeah. So, you know, so it's great to say it, but in the real world, when it comes down to putting these cases together and making sure that they are prosecutable, meaning that you can bring them into a court of law and prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, you want to take your time. Well, and, you know, there's a lot of people, oh, sure, Monday morning quarterbacking, he should be in custody. They should never have let him go. But like you said, they didn't want to do it too quickly because you can't hold him if he doesn't invoke his Fifth Amendment right and gets an attorney. Karen, the most fundamental right as an American living in the United States of America is the presumption of innocence. And even when you are charged with a crime and even when you are on trial and even when a jury is charged and even when a jury goes back to deliberate, the presumption of innocence is cloaked It's an inherent right until such time as a jury comes back and renders its verdict of guilty or until such time as you enter a plea of guilty. And I have to tell you, thank God that we live in the United States and as Americans, we have that right because it's the most important right. And so this idea- OJ Simpson is a perfect example. I just don't believe in having someone prove their innocence. We are required to prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And why is that, Karen? Because God help us all, if there is one innocent person that is in jail right now who has been wrongfully accused or wrongfully convicted, to me, I'd rather let out 10 guilty people in exchange to let that one innocent person out because no person who hasn't committed a crime or who has been convicted of a crime should spend one second in jail. I find that to be something that should keep us all up at night. I think you quoted Voltaire there, and uh, that's why you're a defense attorney, well, Stuart I, Kaplan. Thank you so much for your insight pleasure. in this case. It's my pleasure, always. Talk to you soon, I'm sure, unless nothing happens and they don't find him. But thank you for joining us on Full Rigor. My pleasure, always.